You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, so uh, you need to be uh, you need to have open in your lap First Peter chapter two, and you also need to have in your lap Genesis one. And so, if you'll kind of get both of those two places marked, that would really serve you well um, to get us started this morning. And so, uh, this is again, I said this last week, but this is a sort of a series. We're in a if you stumbled in, we're in part three of a series called Prayers, and it's the sort of series that doesn't stand by itself very well. And so I've got to make sure we do enough review of the last two weeks so you'll know if, you, if this is your first time where we are and where, what ground that we have covered. And so week one, we essentially tried to answer this question. What are we about as a church? Like the mission of Stonegate, what is that mission? What are we about? And, uh, and this is the first thing we said, that because God is about the glory of God, Stonegate is about the glory of God. And so I just want to keep this phrase in front of you. It'll be on the screen, but let me just give you this first piece of this, that we are about extending the glory of God. This is, this is the primary business that God has given the church to be about, extending the glory of God. And then we tried to answer this, this question on that first week. If that's what we're to be about, the glory of God, how do we go about extending it? What is the, what is the way to do that? And in light of uh, Matthew chapter 28, here's how we answer that, that we extend the glory of God by making disciples, that we are about making disciples, the glory of God, the way we extend the glory of God, push out the glory of God is by making wonderful disciples at our church. Okay. So that means disciple making comes in two parts. Part one is gospel proclamation. People hear that and respond to it. And God saves people. And then part two of disciple making is gospel proclamation. And we walk with those saved people as God matures them. Okay, so, so this is disciple making. We're about both of those. There's not like some false dichotomy between discipleship and evangelism. Disciple making requires both. That people respond to Jesus and God saves and then God matures them. But we're about both of those two things. So this is what we're about. If that's the mission, then we have to answer this question. This was last week. How do we go about accomplishing that mission? If we're to be about disciple making for the glory of God, how do we make disciples? So last week we spent our time in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, where we saw that the gospel was the power of God for salvation. That the gospel is God's means to both make and to mature disciples. That this is how God does this thing. That the way God makes a Christian is through the gospel. Gospel proclamation. The way God matures a Christian is through the gospel. That the gospel is foundational to both of those. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus is how God does all of that. So uh, let me just apply this to, to just a, an issue that's going to be in this room that, that would just help, hopefully help make sense of this. Let's say that I want to address pornography, the addiction to pornography that's rampant in our culture that's definitely in this room this morning. So the question is, how how would you go about doing that? So one way to address pornography that would be in this room is to quote Ephesians 5.3. There shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. Okay, now if you've been engaged in the fight for purity for any length of time, you've probably heard a sermon on that. You've probably been quoted that. You've probably even memorized that and it hasn't helped you. That doesn't help. It doesn't help you to know what God requires. So so I could tell you all day that God requires for you to be pure, but knowing that God requires you to be pure doesn't cut out of you the desire for pornography. Okay, so, so let me make sense of this. If all I do is tell you what you should do, 
You remember last week? It's like taking the balloon and all we're doing is trying to hit it time after time with what to do to try to get you to the ceiling. But as soon as you stop hitting the balloon, the balloon falls back down. See, if we want to get helium connected to the balloon where it naturally begins to rise and you naturally begin to grow as a Christian, that does not come by me telling you what to do. It starts by me telling you what God has done for you. That's how we begin to grow as a Christian. See, there's this great myth in Christian circles that sounds like this, that the gospel is the way God makes us a Christian. But if we're going to mature as a Christian, that's all up to sweat equity. That that means that we've got to get some new resolutions in front of us, that we've got to muster up some more willpower, and that's how we get mature in this thing. That's not right. That, that here is how you begin to mature as a Christian, by you digging into and deepening in what God has done for you. See, when you know what God has done for you, it actually motivates and creates a desire to do what God commands you to do. See, if we get the order of that switch, if we start telling you what to do before we tell you what God has done, it makes the doing impossible. But if we start telling you what God has done in Jesus, that Jesus lived a perfectly pure life in place of your pornography riddled life, that he died on the cross for your pornography, that that he rose again from the dead and he is promising to, to satisfy you in a way that pornography never could. See, when we start talking about what God has done for us in Jesus, that is what cuts the cord to the desire of pornography. See, it's what God has done that enables our doing, that fuels our doing, that motivates our doing. So so here's what we tried to say last week, that the gospel is the power of God to both make and to mature us, that this is how God does that. Okay, now we said last week that it was going to take us three weeks to give a robust answer to the how of disciple making, to how it is that we grow and mature. So here's where it started last week, that we make disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's how disciples are made. And now it's going to take us this week and next week to talk about two gospel implications Two gospel implications, two things that the gospel does for us to help us grow as disciples. So this week, we're going to talk about community that the gospel creates for us, a church family. Next week, we're going to talk about mission, how the gospel gives our family a mission to live for and a mission to live on. So this week is community and its role in disciple making. So that's going to start in Genesis chapter one. So make sure you have your Bible open there. Genesis one, one. When we start in Genesis 1, if you're just going to start reading the Bible forward, here is what you're going to see immediately. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it is packed full of things that we need to know about God, about creation, and about us. So when you just start reading in Genesis 1, 1, here's what you see, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that you see, everything. God's the creator. But but in Genesis 1, there is this rhythmic pattern to it where, where he creates and then God pronounces over his creation, it is good. So we, we not only see that God is the creator, we also see that God's creation is good. That, that physical things are gifts from God to us, his creation. So, so God is creator, his creation is good. Then you get down to Genesis 1.26. And I want to point this out to you. Um, in Genesis one twenty six, the Bible begins to kind of open up a window into the being of God, who God is, and into the purpose of man, how he's created, some things about you and I that we need to know. So Genesis one twenty six says this, 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds uh, of the heavens and over the livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look at the first two words that God says in Genesis 126. Let us. Here's the first thing we learn in Genesis 126, that God exists in community. That God exists in community. It's an us. Okay, now this is big time biblical theology right here. God is one. There's only one God. He, one God. But that God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And those three persons are in perfect relational community. The Father loves the Son, has joy in the Son. The Son loves the Spirit and has joy in the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father, has joy in the Father. In perfect community. That God exists in community. Okay, now, now we see the next thing here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we don't just see that God is, exists in community. We also see that God created us like him. That we're cut after God's cloth. That we're made in his image, in his likeness. And here's what that's going to mean for us. One implication of that is that we were created to exist in community. That it's not just God existing in community, that you were created, you, me, us, to exist in relational community with other people and with God. Okay, now I don't think I have to do a lot of work to convince you of this. I mean, just, just think about this and you'll see it woven into the fabric of, of just creation all over the place. I mean, there is a reason why in prison, one of the worst things that they could do to you is put you in solitary confinement. Do you, you see that? That the re... The, they're just cluing into the fabric of how God made this thing. That God created the world to exist, you and I to exist in community. That we are relational beings. Okay, now you see a good picture of this. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's probably even more clear here in Genesis 2, where God has created Adam and he's put him in the garden in paradise. And God pronounces this over Adam in paradise. This is what he pronounces over that situation, that this is not good. Okay, now I want you to think about what God is saying here. That, that God has created the world in such a way that one person cannot enjoy paradise by himself. Do you see that? Genesis 2.18. That one person, God created the world in such a way where one person cannot enjoy paradise. That it takes community to enjoy paradise. It, if, if you're going to enjoy life like God has created us to enjoy life, it requires community for you and I to do that. That it's not good for us to be alone. That God created us to exist in community. And so um, you keep reading in Genesis 2 and God puts Adam to sleep and takes his rib and creates the woman. And now we have our first communal thing happen. First relational thing happen. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and flip over there. Then you get to Genesis chapter 3. It's the most catastrophic event in the history of the world where sin is introduced as Adam and Eve rebel against God and eat the forbidden fruit. And in that moment when sin was introduced into the world, that sin shattered community. It shattered it. It, it fragmented it. That the community from that point on, the relational dynamics from that point on were forever harmed and ruined. And so you just start reading forward now from, from there on. 
Um, do you remember what happens after they sinned? Do you remember what happens between Adam and Eve and God? That they're hiding from God. As soon as they sin, they begin to hide from God. So, so now we've got communal shattering happen, happening between men and, and women and God. The most important relationship in our life. But do you remember what happened between Adam and Eve? They started to blame one another. So now you've got communal shattering that's happening between man and woman. The second most important relationship in our lives. So you've just got this communal disaster that begins to unfold from there. So you start reading forward from Genesis 3 and you get to Genesis 4. And we see Cain murder his brother Abel. This is the communal, this is kind of sin's effects on community. This is the communal shattering that, that sin has done here. You keep reading in Genesis chapter 4 and Lamech takes two wives. You keep reading, you get to Genesis chapter 11 and sin has so marred humanity that, that God has, he gives them new languages and separates them and scatters them. This is the communal effects of sin. You start reading forward from Genesis chapter 11 on and underneath every page of the biblical narrative is sin and its effect on community. But here's the good news of the gospel. The, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has something to say and his work for us has something to do about this communal shattering. So this is going to take us to set 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. And here's what we're about to see in 1 Peter 2. That the gospel recreates community. That the gospel recreates community. So if, if you think about um, sin as fracturing community, as disintegrating community... Jesus, the gospel, is what brings community back together. So, so here we go. First Peter two, chapter or chapter two, verse nine. It, it's because of Jesus, His redemptive work for us, His perfect life, death, resurrection, that Jesus can pronounce this over His people. First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of God, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is one of the most beautiful descriptions in the entire Bible of what Jesus has done for you, of what his work for you has accomplished, the result of the gospel. So, so look at him here says this, that you are now, because of Jesus, a chosen race. It doesn't say your choice. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God and his grace. That, that he has set his affection on you and he has saved you. That you're a chosen race. That you're a royal priesthood. A priest was a person that has access to God. So if you're a Christian, you have trusted and treasured Jesus. Here's what that means for you. That you have open access to God. That you can pray to God and know that you have God's ear because of Jesus. You're a royal priest. That you're a holy nation. Isn't this amazing? Um, just think about your life for a second. I mean, we could just go last week probably. And think about the sin that pops up in just the normal everyday life that you live. And yet God can look at you and I and say you are holy. Before me, you are perfectly clean. But because all of your sin was given to Jesus and his perfect record was credited to your account. So when I look at you, I see the perfect life of Jesus that was lived in place of you. That you're holy. Now just sail on that. That God looks at you as clean if you're a Christian. 
that you're a holy nation. And then he says, a people for his own possession. If you put your faith in Jesus, it means that he has adopted you into his family and he calls you his own. And that if you're a Christian, you can look at God and you can call God your own. That you're a people for his own possession. Okay, now, now here's the point I want to make in this passage. And I want you to see what Paul or what Peter is emphasizing here and showing us here. I want you to look at each of these four descriptions. And I want you to notice this about each one of these descriptions. None of them are singular. I mean, do you see that? Look at each one of them. That you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. That none of those are singular. All of them are plural. Like Peter is showing us the gospel has communal implications. That it is through the gospel that that God mends and brings back together and recreates what was lost in the garden. So, So just read this again here. And let me just highlight this. First, for a couple of words in, in verse nine, but you. Okay, now that is not like you individually. That's not like you fill in your name. That is you plural. We're in Texas, so we would say what? Y'all. That's what he's saying. Y'all. You all, like from over there all the way to over here, it's all of you that you all are a chosen race. Can you be a race of people and, and be one person? No, you can't. It takes a group of people. Like the gospel has these communal effects. It doesn't just create a chosen person, but a chosen race, a group. He goes on here. that You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. It doesn't say that you're a royal priest. You're not going to find that anywhere. It's not you, a, a royal priest. It's you, plural. You're a royal priesthood. The gospel is bringing back together what was lost in Genesis 3. It keeps going here. That you're a holy nation. Can one individual make up a nation? No. It takes a group of people to make a nation. Communal effects of the gospel. Keeps going. A people for his own possession. Can you be a people and be one person? No. It takes a group of people to be a people. Are you seeing that? That all of these issues, all of these gospel implications are communal in nature. Like, like Peter is showing us here that what the gospel does is bring back together. It recreates the community that was lost in Genesis three. One of the classic ways of describing sin is, is that, and the effects of sin is that sin has a way of bending us inward. So, so we're created by God in Genesis one and two to have an outward orientation towards God and other people, but sin bends us in on ourselves, where all we can do is think about ourselves and our own little personal kingdoms. Like I heard a guy say this, that uh, 95% of our free time thinking has nothing to do with anything other than our personal little kingdoms. See, this isn't just an Adam and Eve thing, a Cain and Abel thing. This is a you and I thing. The effects of sin bend us in on ourselves, where all we can see in the world is ourself. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel comes back around and it bends us back out towards God and towards other people. What what sin shattered and fractured in Genesis 3, the gospel is mending and restoring and redeeming in Jesus. So maybe we could just say it like this. That the gospel creates a family. The gospel creates a family. The the gospel recreates what was lost in Genesis 3 
And, and here's how the gospel does that. It recreates for you a new family called the church. So, so how does that work? So um, when, when you become a Christian, God adopts you into his family, and that makes you a son or a daughter of God. And do you know what that makes other people that God adopts into his family? Brothers and sisters of yours. Like in the most tangible and real sense that a person could be a brother or a sister, Christians are to you. In the most tangible sense that people can be a family to you, that is what the church is to you and I. So just look around the room real quick. I mean, just look at a few faces around the room. I mean, you don't have to make it awkward, but just look around for a second. In the most real sense that I could give to you, that is family for you. This is what the gospel does. It creates a family. And let me just clarify this. That family is not built on or built around class or color. Amen? That family is not built around age or interest. That family is built around this common experience in the room. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God looked upon us and gave grace to us and made our hearts alive and saved us. That's what makes us family. That's why we can be 65 or 70 in the room and we can be 15 in the room and we can say we are all brothers and sisters. We are all in the most tangible sense of the word. We are family. Here's what the gospel does for you. It it recreates what we lost in Genesis 3 by creating for you a new family called the church. Now, here's the warning that goes along with this. And by the way, this is the point of the sermon. This is what the gospel does. But here's the warning of the sermon. The warning is, is that for our church family to practically grow into what God has already made us. So God's already made us a family. But for us to practically grow into that in this church, in our church family, is very difficult. For us to practically grow into what God has already made us is grueling work, hard work. So I I want to describe the process of of what it takes and what it requires to grow in practically into the family that God's already made us. And if you were here, this has been five or six months ago, we we worked through this this graph. I want to do this again this morning. So at the top of that um, mountain there, the end of the road, you see family mountain. That would be the description of what God has made us. He's already made us that. So in a real sense, in the most real sense, when you look around this room, this is brothers and sisters, this is family in this room. So God has already made us that. But the pathway to practically grow into that, like practically, for you to experience that tangibly within this church family is difficult. So this this roadway kind of marks it out. This is the path toward family mountain. And that path toward family mountain It's first stop, kind of the head of the trail, is this word interesting. This is where it starts. Relationships always start with this word interesting. You look at somebody across the room and you think, you know what? They're interesting. There's just enough curiosity peaked in you that makes you think, I'm going to take one more step toward that person. So so I'm going to take a step toward getting to know them on one, like one, like step deeper of a level. So it starts at interesting. And listen, we could talk about marriage here. We could talk about friendships. This is where they start at the word interesting. And then it goes on to cool. 
I don't know if you've ever been to this stage with someone where uh, you've moved past interesting, you've taken a couple of steps toward them, they've taken a couple of steps toward you, and, and now you, you've kind of progressed a little bit. You're actually getting to know them a little bit better, and whatever cool is, they're wearing it. I mean, they've got it. It, it is all over them. And that makes you want to take a couple of more steps toward them. And this is when we find ourselves on what we call Awesome Hill. I don't know if you've ever been on Awesome Hill. But, but Awesome Hill is that moment in a friendship or in a relationship where when you think about them, talk about them, when, when their name comes up in conversation, it is nothing but high praises for that person. And here's why. Because all you know about that person right now is the good in that person. All you know is, is what they've presented and what they've allowed for you to know. Are you seeing this? This is dating, by the way, right? I mean, what do we try to do in dating? We're trying to present our best to someone and we're trying to hide all the ugly stuff. Okay, this is dating. We're on awesome hill where where we know all the good about that person. But here's the thing. We don't know that person because we don't know all the baggage and sinful tendencies they bring to the table. All we know is the good. This is awesome hill. And this is, this is the rough point in relationships right here. It's, it's when we're, we're on Awesome Hill and, and we have this moment where they sin against us, we sin against them, and we fall off the cliff of Awesome Hill into what we call Cruddy Valley. <laughs> and Cruddy Valley is a messy place to be with people. It, it is when now you for the first time realize that they don't just bring good to the table. I mean, this is why the first year of marriage is oftentimes really hard, Right? You're you're discovering that there's a whole part of that person that you didn't know near as well as you thought you did. So so now the curtain is pulled back on them and you're starting to see that, wow, they're not just cool. They're not just interesting and they're definitely not awesome anymore. (laughs) That that really what they are under the surface, they are self-seeking, self-promoting, self-centered jerks. That's what they are. That they've actually got sinful tendencies and sinful habits that maim and wound people around them. And you just receive that. So, so Credit Valley is the moment where either sin on your part, sin on their part, you have wounded and hurt one another. This is Credit Valley. Every relationship gets there. We all do because we're all, we're, we're all sinners in the room. It's going to happen. It's going to come out of us. Now, here's what I want to stop for just a second and address. I want to address, address what I think is the, just the reflexive response that, that, generally speaking, every one of us have when we fall off the hill and into Cruddy Valley. See, here's what happens in churches just like ours all over the place. Is you're walking with somebody, interesting, cool, we're on awesome hill, things are going great. We love the church, we love our home group, we love our people, everyone is awesome there. And all of a sudden, it goes really badly relationally. They sin against you, you sin against them. I mean, it is like iron on iron, like you want to punch somebody right in the chest, you're so mad at them. That that moment happens. And here's what happens to, to most of us in the room in that moment, is there is this reflexive response that says, There is no way I'm walking through Cruddy Valley with that person. No way I'm doing that. I didn't sign up for this. I'm not about this. I am am pulling out. So we disengage from from that group of people or that person. And we find another person in the church that's interesting. 
that's cool. And then we got an awesome hill. And then all of a sudden we fall off the cliff again. Now we're in Cruddy Valley again. We disengage and we find a new person and another group of people. And, and we, we, interesting, cool, awesome hill. We fall off the cliff again. We disengage, interesting, to, to awesome hill in the, in the valley again. And, and we do that over and over and over again. And if we run out of people in a church like this, we just go to another church down the street and start all over again at interesting. And can I just be honest with you? This is the reason some of you came to Stonegate. Is because of this. You're in Cruddy Valley somewhere. You disengaged, wanted to pull out. I'm not doing that. But for a few in the room, you you know that when when you look around the room this morning, of a family, church family that you're seeing here, that you know even the best people in the room have terrible sinful tendencies in them. That it's just a matter of time before you sin against them, drag them into Cruddy Valley. They sin against you, drag you into Cruddy. It's just a matter of time. You know that they're not the only self-seeking, self-promoting, self-centered jerks in the room. That actually you are too. And, and when you fall into Cruddy Valley together, you, you're, you, you overcome that reflex of I'm out of here and you stick in. You've made this predetermined choice. I'm going to stick in in that moment. And, and I'm going to figure out what it looks like to be patient in the midst of that. To speak the truth in love in the midst of that. To be long-suffering in the midst of that. To love them as God would, would have you love them in the midst of that. And it's those people in the room that stick in in the midst of Cruddy Valley that actually get to start climbing up Family Mountain. But it's only those people. So, so let me just say this as clearly as I can. If you're, if you're picture yourself at, at the trailhead. Like you're standing right here looking down the trail. Isn't it interesting that, that if you're looking at it from the front of the trail, that it seems like Family Mountain is just one small, small step past Awesome Hill. So if you're at Awesome Hill, it feels like, looks like, all I have to do is take one more step and we're there. We have arrived at the destination of Family Mountain. Can I just remind you of this? That is not true. That's a myth. The only way for you to get to Family Mountain, practically working into what God has positionally already made us here, is to fall off of a cliff, a sheer drop, into Cruddy Valley, to stick in with that person through Cruddy Valley, and then start the difficult and grueling climb up Family Mountain. That is the only way. So so let me say it this way. If you're the person that as soon as you get to Cruddy Valley, you want to pull back your reflexive responses. I'm out of here. I'm disengaging. Can I just tell you what that's going to produce in you? You're going to retard your spiritual development. You're going to stay a little spiritual baby. See, Cruddy Valley, working up Family Mountain, that is part of the process of God maturing you and growing you. That is the only way we can practically become chosen race. Royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. So here's what I want to do to kind of finish up this morning. I want to give you four questions to gauge your communal depth, or if we're going to say that another way, for you to determine and for you to see and gauge how far up Family Mountain you've made it. So so these are communal questions that, that have this purpose. To, to help you gauge how far up towards Family Mountain have you practically walked. Okay, so question number one. Question number one. Do, do people, do you have people in your life 
Do people speak the truth in love to you? Like, is that a normal thing in your life? You have people around you that speak the truth in love to you. Okay, this is an Ephesians 4.15 issue. And I would love to have time to roll through Ephesians 4 and, and teach the whole thing. We can't do it this morning. But here's what I'm telling you based on Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. You will not mature as a disciple until you have gospel-created community around you that is willing to speak the truth in love to you. You will not mature as a disciple without that. Everyone in the room, you know this about yourself, I hope. You have blind spots. Do you know that? By definition, blind spots are things you can't see. You see that? We all have blind spots and by definition, you can't see them. Which means you need gospel-created community to come around you to help you see about you what you can't see about you. You need that. I need that. We all need that. If we're going to mature as a disciple, one of God's primary means to help us do that is gospel-created community. Maybe you could say it like this. One of God's primary ways of maturing you is God's people. That's one of God's primary ways. God's people are God's primary ways to grow you into maturity, to, to, to rub off of you r- your rough edges. I, maybe, let me even go as far as to say this way. You know the person that you can't stand? That is God's means, especially if they're in this church family, that is God's means to mature you as a believer. That is God's means to mature you as a disciple. That the God's people are God's primary means to grow and mature you. Speak the truth in love to you. So, so let me come at it from a different angle. So I think if I were to ask you the question, do you have people right now in your life that authentically love you and care for you? How would you measure that? How much people love you? Do you have that right now in your life? And I think this is how a lot of us would measure it. Do we have people that are nice for us and that speak nicely to us? And listen, I'm just saying that's a terrible measurement as to whether or not people care for you. I mean, the only problem with that measurement is the Bible. Like this is Proverbs 27, 6, right? That that deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you don't have people who will faithfully wound you, you don't have friends. If you don't have people who will faithfully wound you, you don't have friends. So what if we turned our our measurement for how much people loved us around and ask it this way? What if the measurement is, do people, will people faithfully wound me when I need it most? What if that was your measurement for how much people love you? What if that was the gauge? And let me just ask you, do you have that? People that are willing to speak the truth in love to you when you need it. Faithfully wound you when you need it. I, I always laugh about this story. One of the guys I used to work with way back in the day, he, uh, he told this story about being, he, I think he was a, maybe a 11th or 10th, 11th grader. And he was like FCA guru. He was a youth leader kind of in his church. And, uh, and he started dating a girl. And in the midst of all this, he had um, shared the gospel with a, with a younger uh, friend of his that uh, God, God saved him. And now he was investing his life into this younger man. And uh, at one point, this younger guy walked up to my buddy and said, uh, hey, 
I know exactly why you're dating that girl and walked off. This was younger, younger guy, a person that he led to Jesus and was discipling. I know exactly why you're dating her. Okay, now let me just make this point. If you don't have people that will look you square in the face and say, I know exactly why you're doing that. You do not have friends. You don't. You have people that will flatter you. You might have people that like you, but you don't have friends who want to care for your soul. And, And one more thing on this and we'll keep moving. You better be wise enough to invite that into your life because most people aren't going to do it without an invitation. And you're going to need to be reminded whenever they speak the truth and love to you that you actually invited that. Because if you're like me, it never goes well when somebody wants to correct you, right? And you're going to need to be reminded that you actually invited that into your life. Listen, you need that. We need that. Everyone in our church family needs people who are willing to faithfully wound them. So let me just ask it again. Do you have people that will speak the truth and love to you? If not, you're, you're not climbing up Family Mountain yet. Question number two. Are you 100% known? Now, this is going to sound like a broken record because I say this all the time because I want this to be ingrained into the way we think about community. If you are 99% known and 1% unknown, what does that make you? Unknown. Are we all seeing that? If you are 99% out on the table, people seeing you, but you've got this 1% that you kind of keep back, make sure nobody sees. If you're 99% known and 1% unknown, that makes you unknown. That's what you are. You know what that means? Let me say this in a different vocabulary. It means that you're pretending. It means that you're trying to be this in front of people when you know you're not that. Pretending. Cuts to the core of one of the primary problems that churches have with people is everyone's pretending. Everyone's acting as if they've got life together when on the inside, everyone knows nobody's got life together. It's called being 100% known. See, let, let me give you the imagery of pretending. And I've used this before, but let me give it to you again. If you can picture that moment where you've invited someone over for dinner and it's 6.30, And uh, you look up and it's 6.15 and your house is a disaster. You know that moment? And you go into panic pickup mode where you just get everything in your hands, throw it in a bag, whatever you have to do, and you lob it into the closet. And then you get your body weight behind the door and cram it shut and just pray to God that no one tries to open it because it's probably going to kill them. See, this is the imagery of pretending. And this is what happens in churches. That rather than just saying, this is the disaster in the floor, everyone tries to pick up the house real quick, throw it into the closet and act like the house isn't a disaster. So let me just apply this across the room. Like right now, there are marriages in this room that are literally crumbling and crashing down around you right now. And it's unbelievable that we would try to hide that. As if that actually works in the end, right? There are people in the room right now that literally you're a financial disaster. And yet we try to like put the facade on it as if we're not. And we could talk about lust and pornography or bitterness and unforgiveness. Here's the only point I'm trying to make is that it doesn't help to pretend. That doesn't help. I mean, let me give you this metaphor to to illustrate what, what our problem is in churches. 
And this is in, in here. Is that it, it's like our house is engulfed in flames. I mean, it's burning to the ground and we're watching it. And yet we've run to the street. Our neighbors have come out and we're trying to convince them that our house isn't on fire. Listen, if your house is on fire, it just works a lot better to call the fire truck and admit that. Do you see it? And listen, I'm just telling you this. If there are issues in your life, it doesn't help to throw them in the closet and act like they don't exist. Like this is what being 100% known means. And, and this is the pushback that I think commonly comes from this. Is, um goes like this. So are you saying like people have to know everything about us? And, and here's my statement back to that. It depends. Do you want to live on Awesome Hill or do you want to live on Family Mountain? If you want to live on Awesome Hill, they can know half about you and that's just fine. But if you want to live on Family Mountain, it doesn't mean everyone in the room has to know everything about you, but someone in the room has to know everything, 100% of you. And, and, and if that's your concern, like, man, what is that going to feel like, be like? Am I going to get crucified for that? Like, what... What are people going to think of me? If that's you in the room, I, I want to encourage you by asking you this question. Why, why does it matter so much to you if people know all of you? And just sail on that for a second. Why does that matter so much to you that people would know all of you? And I want to encourage you with this. That this is a gospel issue. That the reason that worries you so much and, and that's so scary to you is because you haven't fully grasped and gripped the gospel yet. See, here, here's what the gospel says about you. The absolute worst. You know that? It says the worst thing about you, that you are so sinful that, that Jesus actually had to die for you. That's how bad you are. See, anything you throw out on the table sounds pretty light in comparison to that. But the gospel also says the best thing about you, that you are so loved by God that Jesus was glad to die for you. Are, are you seeing that? See, when you start to grip that, when you start to believe that, like down in your bones, you're believing that, that the fear of, of being known starts to dissipate. It's okay to be known at that point. You're not terrified of that anymore. You don't run from that anymore. So this is a gospel issue that God would press the gospel deeply into us so that we could be people who are 100% known. So, so if, if we're judging Family Mountain by that, how are we doing? 100% known. That there's a group of people who know all of you, your sinful tendencies and habits. Number three is do you have unplanned interaction with your church family? Unplanned interaction. Getting to know people like family, getting to know them like that requires a lot of time. Uh, Casey Maddox is on staff with us. He's a church planning resident and uh, we are really, really good friends. And here's why we are really, really good friends. In college, we spent two years together in a fraternity house of all places. It's a wonder that we're Christians. We, we lived in the same room together for one year. And you know what that did for us? It just put us around each other where we're casually spending time together. We're eating together. We're recreating together. We're playing together. We're just doing life together. And it requires doing life together to actually become family with a group of people. So I, I showed this to you a couple of months ago as well. I want to show this one more time though. This is going to illustrate the problem that a lot of us have and one of the reasons that we don't have good community in our life. So, so here's the first screen. This would represent our life. 
So if you just think about your life in big blocks, you you might think of it in these four quadrants. You've got church and and the family of God that, that we've been called to get to know and love and be around and serve. And then you've got work up at the top right. Then you've got home and marriage and family at the top left. And then you've got play and recreation and the things you enjoy doing for fun. If you want to think about your life in those four quadrants, that might be doable quadrants for you. And here's the problem that keeps most of us from developing good community is this next slide. That the only time our lives intersect with our church family is when we are at church. So in other words, the only time our lives intersect with with our family here is in that one small little corner of our life called church. So we don't do any of our work together. We don't do any of our home stuff together. We don't recreate and play together. So it just doesn't allow time to get to know one another. It makes it impossible to actually begin moving up to Family Mountain. Okay, now this is the corrective piece of this. If you actually want to move toward family with a group of people here, here is what it requires from you and from me. This next slide. This is what our lives have to begin to look like. They have to be overlapping. So, so that recreation, that work, that family, that church, that all of these components of our life begin to work together with the group of people, that we actually have overlapping lives. See, if all of your interaction with the group of people is planned, you don't have community. It takes more than planned interaction. It takes casual interaction to actually begin growing up to Family Mountain, to start moving up to Family Mountain. It takes you casually interacting with other people. So let me illustrate it this way. And by the way, this is why we press geography in our home groups as hard as we do. That, that if you have to drive 20 or 25 minutes to get to the group of people that you're trying to get to know, you've probably eliminated your potential to actually have good, rich community before you've ever started. Because it requires a 25-minute drive to get there. So now let me contrast that with um, Andy and Christina Valderas. They live in my neighborhood. They're five houses down from where Laura and I live. Um, They come to church with us. So we see them in the first service, first row right here. And they go to home group with us. So we meet on Wednesday nights together. But then in the week, because they're five houses down from us, we have all sorts of unplanned interaction. I go and steal their swimming pool like four times a week. So I I live in their backyard, it feels like to them. Um, We're always out in the neighborhood. So we're bumping into each other as we recreate and as we exercise. It's just all sorts of unplanned interaction. And you know what that's created for Andy and Christina and Laura and I? Good community. To, To where we actually know each other. Like we're actually moving towards Family Mountain together because we have all sorts of unplanned interaction. So, so here's what this means for you. We, we, don't have, we don't have home groups in every geographical area that our church is made up of right now. We're working hard toward that, but we don't have it yet. But if you're having to drive to a home group, step one ought to be to think this. Is there a place that geographically could make community easier for me? It would make it much more natural. But if I'm going to drive, then this is what it's going to mean for you if you're going to be a driver that you're going to have to work extra hard in developing unplanned interaction to having your lives overlap with a group of people. So let me ask you again. Do you have unplanned interaction with people? See, if, if you're going to move towards family, that's going to be a requirement for you. And here's number four, and we'll wrap it up with this. Number four is do you prioritize community into your decision-making? Do you prioritize it into your decision-making? 
From my experience in talking about community and having sermons like this and um, just doing the thing of, of attempting to move people into community, it's been my experience that it's really easy to get people enthusiastic about the idea of community until it actually alters the way they live their life. So it's easy to get people to talk about the need um, for community and enthusiastic about community until it's seven o'clock on Wednesday and your home group meets on Wednesday. And all you can think is, I want to do nothing but sit on the couch and watch the Rangers for the rest of the night. The enthusiasm dies really quickly right there. See, it's really easy to be enthusiastic about community until you want to buy the car and everyone in your community is looking at you saying, you would be an absolute fool if you buy that car. Then community is no more fun. See, community, we're all enthusiastic about community until we really want to sin and we're going after it with just reckless abandon. And we've got people speaking the truth in love, pointing out our sin, reminding us of Jesus. We've got people actually doing that. Then community is the worst thing we could possibly imagine. See, it's real easy to be enthusiastic about community until it actually alters the way you start living. It's really easy to be enthusiastic about community until it requires you to sit down with your schedule and to ask hard questions about how to prioritize it into your life. It's really easy until it requires that. I I think that in in my experience, this has been the, the, the number one excuse and the biggest perceived obstacle to community is just time. That people feel like you don't have time for it. And so I wanna I wanna address that just really quickly this morning by saying this that you always have time for what's most important to you. You always have time for what's most important. You, you'll make time for it. I'll make time for it. We all make time for those things that we consider the top of our list that have to get done today. We'll all make time for that. Now, a lot of us don't sit down with our schedule and prioritize what's most important. So we just reactively live life and whatever's most urgent in the moment, we do it. That, that becomes the thing that we've got to get done today. See, here's what community, overlapping lives, you being 100% known, speaking the truth in love, like you actually growing into family is going to require of you and I. In, in light of the busyness of our schedules, it's going to require you and your family setting down before God with this priority in place. We have got to be in good community. And can I just tell you, there is nothing in your life as important as that. There is nothing, like when you think of your marriage, there is nothing more important than you having your marriage in good community where people care about your marriage. There is nothing more important about your finances than for you to be in good community with people who care about you. This is important for you. It's at the top of the list sort of importance is for your life to be in and among gospel-created community. And so in light of that, this is what it requires for every one of us, that we're gonna have to sit down before God and ask this question. In light of this priority, what can stay in my schedule and what has to go in my schedule? I mean, don't confuse busyness with productivity. I mean, you can be a hamster in a little treadmill, run a hundred miles per hour, but never get anywhere, right? So, so it's not just doing things that's important. It's doing the right things. That we actually have to sit down before God and pray, God, give us wisdom as to what has to go, what can stay, but how do we make this priority central in our schedule? Okay, so I'm going to end by giving you a quick picture and uh, talk about our pathway, and then we're going to end with the prayer of uh, community for our church. So here's the picture. 
Can you imagine what it would be like in your life to have um, your family and you personally intertwined with a group of people that actually care about your soul? You're 100% known. People speaking the truth in love to you because they care for you. They're willing to faithfully wound you when you need it because they care about your soul. Can, Can you imagine what it would be like to live your life with a group of people that will point out your sin when you need it and constantly remind you of Jesus in the middle of it. Now, our pathway at Stonegate is home groups for that. That's the structure we have set up to create an atmosphere or space for this sort of community to develop. But listen, it doesn't matter if we set up a structure of home groups. It requires you to engage in that. Let me say it this way. It is not biblical for you to come to church on Sunday morning. It is not biblical for you to come to church on Sunday morning. It's biblical for you to have your life intertwined with your faith family. That's what's biblical. It's not just a coming to church thing. It's your life being intertwined with and intersected with a church family. That's, what, that, that's where the Bible would be moving you. That's where God would want you. That's the family mountain that we're talking about here. And that requires you to actually be engaged in home groups. It requires you to actually get your life prioritized around it. That means you show up, but not just show up. You can hide all day long and show up for the rest of your life. It means that you actually seek to be 100% known in that group. That you're inviting people to speak the truth in love to you. It requires you to engage in that. So so that means like today, if I had one hope that the Spirit of God would do for us, it would be that the Spirit of God would begin moving us in that direction. Not just showing up, but but actually inviting people speaking the truth in love, 100% known. And let me end it with this prayer. So in light of that, I want to invite you to start praying this prayer for the Stonegate family. Father, help us see our church as a family that's been formed by faith in Jesus and is one of the primary ways you mature us as disciples. And God, give us the grace to walk the difficult and grueling and hard road toward Family Mountain. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to sit in that and under that and just praying that the Spirit of God would press in you the things that would be most helpful and wipe away the things that that would not be helpful this morning. And if you're a a person that has never trusted Jesus and, and been saved by God, the first step towards you actually moving towards Family Mountain is actually becoming an adopted son or daughter of God. It's you holding up your life and saying, God, I am yours. I'm trusting in the work of Jesus. Save me. And in that moment, God promises to do it. And for the Christians in the room, I pray that God might work into us good repentance on a neglect of community that we would see that he doesn't want us to be a chosen person, but a chosen race, a priesthood, a nation, a people for his own possession. That means your life needs to be connected and intertwined with people. 
And so, God, I pray that, that you might, by your grace, press our church family into a group of people who would be 100% known, engaged in community, our lives intertwined with one another, inviting people in. God, will you help us in that? God, I pray for the fearful this morning. That, that just scares them to death. God, that the gospel would sink deeply into them and that they would move in that direction. And God, we want to thank you for the work of Jesus that makes us family in this room, that makes us brothers and sisters adopted by you. And God, we want to celebrate that. So God, we pray that you would do this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.